Bibles, please, and open them to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Today we're studying once again verses 11 through 15, and this should be quite familiar to you now. Uh, The subject is the courtroom of the condemned, Uh, although you might be thinking now all that you ever wanted to know about hell is what the subject of our sermon is. All you wanted to know about hell but was afraid to ask. Uh, We are studying the doctrine of hell And it's not my intention simply to give us a a macabre study of something that we really don't want to know anything about, but it's to impress upon your minds the real importance that there is of, of telling people about Jesus Christ and letting them know that there is this awful place called hell, and we don't want anybody to go there, not our friends, not our families, not even our worst enemies would we want to go to this place that's called hell. And I've mentioned, I mentioned in our first lesson, the very first one as we were studying this, that there are many Christians who have looked at this subject and they have just become so impressed with it that they've had their lives thoroughly redirected. That all that they want to do is just tell people about Christ and, and tell them about the hope that's in Christ because without him, without deliverance from hell, there is no hope. When a person dies, that's it. There are no other decisions to be made. There's no chance that you can alter the course when you die where you were headed at the moment that you uh, gave up this life is where you're going to spend eternity. So there's a fearful warning of judgment that's given in the Scripture. That is what awaits people. The inevitable sentence of judgment is eternal fire in eternal uh, death, rather in the fires of hell. And this is what we need to tell people about. Now, there are many concordant doctrines that go along with this, but certainly we would have to say that hell has to be taught in connection with the gospel because we have to be saved from something. I mean, that's what the gospel is all about. There is an impending danger that faces every single person. From the moment that you come into this world, there's this impending danger of hell that's out there, and we need to be delivered from the wrath of God. Salvation is about being delivered from something. And it's about being delivered from God's wrath. And so without that truth, you really don't have a gospel at all. Because you have to make people aware that they must repent of their sins because that is the very thing that's put them in this place to begin with. It's because of their sins that God has wrath. And so we have to be forgiven of those sins and have God's wrath turned away from us. So it seems impossible that there would be any preachers who would say, well, we don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to mention that because there's just too much negativity in people's lives. And what we really want to do is just preach a more positive message. We don't want to talk about hell. Well, I've covered this many times. That is not the gospel of Christ because all the negativity that a preacher seeks to avoid is heaped on the unbeliever in one fatal blow. And that's when he stands before God at the judgment. If he doesn't know about this, if he hasn't been delivered from this, then judgment comes from God. And when he stands before God in judgment, the outcome of that is the eternity of hell. Now, there's a second doctrine here that stands out, and you might not see it as being related, but it is very important. There is an active confrontational aspect of us giving other people the gospel of Christ. That's going to a person and just telling them that they must repent of their sins, that hell awaits them. If they don't trust Christ, they'll die and go to this place. 
But there's also another side of that, that's the passive side. And that's the necessity of living a holy life. There's, there's a necessity of obeying the commands of Christ and presenting a good testimony before other people. Because what you don't want to happen is for your life to be the cause, to be a, to be a discouragement to other people who would believe in Christ, but because of what you are and the way that you act, they think that there's no need. If that's what a Christian is, I don't really need to be saved out of anything because I act just like they do and they act just like me. So you have that positive side, that confrontational side of telling people about Christ. But you also have this more passive side, even though it's positive in this sense, that you live a life for Jesus Christ so that you don't discourage people in their faith. Now, the reason that I mention this is because most Christians are not going to stand before a crowd like we have here today and preach to them. Most of you aren't going to do that. And there are very few Christians who spend even more than just a few minutes telling people about Christ. But you do live in the world every single day. You do live here every single second of every single day. And your lives intersect the lives of lost people. And so how you live your life is extremely important. You see, Scripture doesn't spend all the time that it talks about righteousness and talk about being Christ-like just because it needs to fill up space on pages. There's really an importance to this. Uh, We have to positively give the message of Christ, and you can be one of two things for Jesus Christ. You can be that positive message by the way that you live, or you can be a negative message by the way that you live. And that happens even if you never speak even one word about Christ. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Ye are the salt of the earth... But if the salt have lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that is this aspect of living for Christ in order to affect the world. And Scripture says that light dispels darkness. And so if your life is nothing but darkness, then all that you do is just add to the confusion of people that need to come to Christ. And you can be guilty in your life of actually leading people to the very place that we're talking about now, to the great white throne judgment of God that ends in eternal hell. Now, I'd like for us to read these scriptures again, and uh, we're reading this text for the fifth time, and I do hope that this is beginning to sink down in you, that it's impacted your thinking, and it really does make you concerned about those that are without Christ. Now, if you'll stand with me, please, as we look in the scriptures, uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 11, Revelation 20, verse 11, and I saw a great white throne... And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works." 
And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. I do pray, Lord, that these words of Scripture will impact our lives. Help us to make a change to be those who would give people the gospel of Christ so they might be delivered from an awful place called hell. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In four weeks of this study previously, we have really covered a lot of ground concerning this uh, doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of hell. And I'm not going to take time today to go back and look over the first three messages and speak of those. And I do just want to take a little bit of time to barely touch on what we talked about last week. So if you're visiting with us today, your outline might look a little bit peculiar to you because we're not starting with number one in the outline. We're starting with number six, and that's because we've already covered a lot of ground. But we began with, or rather, we're going to begin today with Roman numeral six, which is the conclusion of judgment. And we've already established by looking at the Scripture in many different places that the great white throne judgment is a judgment for people that have died without Christ. There are no saved people that appear at this judgment. And that's because for a person who who has his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have already been delivered from their sins. Their sins are forgiven in Christ. And the Scripture makes the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And the word condemnation in that Scripture means judgment. There is no judgment For those that have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins have been covered under his blood, and they have the peace of God. They don't have judgment for sin because the peace of God rules their hearts. And at the point that we're talking about here in this text, these people, saved people, are already in heaven, and they're worshiping around God's ruling throne. So this is a judgment of people that are condemned. And they're not here at this judgment to determine whether they're saved and they're able to go into heaven or whether they're lost and they're going to be condemned to hell. But rather, this is a judgment to decide what their punishment will be. Now, when a person dies, as I said just a moment ago, it's already been decided where you're going to go. That's not decided after your life is over. It's already decided in this life according to whether you have received Christ or rejected him. And so people that stand before the great white throne judgment of God are there to determine the extent of the punishment that they will receive in hell. Now, letter A on your listening sheet today is the degrees of punishment in hell. And that's what we talked about last week. Verse number 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, I don't want to go back today and prove to you again the degrees of punishment in hell, but I do want to tell you that all people are sinners, but not all people have sinned alike. Not all people have the same knowledge of God. Not every person has heard a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so not everyone stands in the same position before God in that particular sense. There are some people that have purposely rejected the gospel of Christ, but there are other people that haven't heard it at all. But the Bible still says that every person is a sinner. We're all guilty of sin. And so the punishment that's given in hell is an eternal punishment 
but everyone doesn't suffer to the same degree. The same degrees of punishment are not given to all. Now, the Bible says here that God has a record of every person's deeds, of all of his thoughts, all of his motives, all of his words, and the degree of a person's punishment in hell is determined by what's written in those books. That's what outlines it. Now, we'll say again that the worst punishment that a person will receive, the worst punishment is reserved for those who have heard the gospel of Christ and rejected it. There is no greater crime against God than to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear what Jesus has done in in dying on the cross for your sins, and then to reject that message. Now, that makes it kind of an interesting position that people are in when they go to church. If you go to a gospel-preaching and a gospel-believing church, it can be the best thing that that ever happened to you, or it can be the worst thing that ever happened to you. It just depends on how you react to the message that's preached. Well, I want to move on from that part of the discussion today, and I want to speak particularly to you this morning about this place called hell. Now, now we've talked around it, and we've said a lot of things about it in kind of general terms, and we've talked about judgment, but what is this place called hell? What does the Bible have to say about it? Well, we're taking this under the heading of the destination for punishment. Hell is the destination for punishment. What's it like? Well, the Bible has quite a bit to say about it. Uh, It's really utterly amazing that a preacher would say, well, I don't want to talk about hell, when hell is... uh, The most things that we learn about hell, the most that we're taught about hell, actually comes from the teachings of the Savior. Now, before we go on, we really kind of need to back up just a little bit to get our terminology right. You'll notice here in the 14th verse that the Scripture says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And there in that verse, the word that's translated as hell comes from the Greek word Hades. And so we could read it this way, And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now, in an earlier message, I told you that Uh, we had talked about Hades, and I said that it appears to me that Hades is a place of torment where lost souls go immediately after their death. And they remain there until we come to the time of judgment that's spoken of here in in this particular part of Scripture. So hell is a place where the... uh, Hades, rather, is the place where disembodied spirits are held. Those that are not believers in Christ, they are incarcerated, you might say, in this place called Hades, and they're kept there until the time of judgment. And then just prior to the judgment, God will resurrect the bodies of those lost that died without him... he'll bring the soul up out of Hades, and then he'll rejoin body and soul, and then they'll be given, these people will be given a a body that's suited for eternal punishment, and then both soul and body will be cast into the lake of fire. So in my view, Hades and the lake of fire are two different places, although they have much the similar, same characteristics. Now, there are people, though, that I highly respect that have a difference of opinion about this, that they think Hades and the lake of fire are the same place. And the difference is actually the disposition of the person. That is, while he is disembodied, he's in the place called Hades, and then when the body is taken, or the soul is taken out of Hades and rejoined with the body, then in, the, in that state, with the body and soul combined, then they're cast back into the same place, only now it's called the lake of fire. 
Now, I'm not going to argue strenuously for either position. I do think that the first is right, that Hades is a separate place from the lake of fire. But hell in the New Testament actually translates two different words. Now, here, as we've noticed, the underlying Greek word in verse number 14 is the word Hades. But the majority of times that Jesus talked on the same subject and he used the word hell, he didn't use the word Hades. He used a different word, and the word that he used was Gehenna. Now, there are many examples of this that we find in the New Testament. I'm going to read you just a few of these. Uh, three of these come from Matthew, and one comes from Luke. In Matthew 10:28, Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there's a verse that fits in perfectly with what I told you earlier. Uh, The body is resurrected, joined with the soul again, and then both are cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 23, 15, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more, the child of hell, than yourselves." In the 33rd verse of Matthew 23, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And then in Luke 12 verse 5, he says, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And in each of those cases, Jesus did not use the word Hades that we find there in Revelation 20:14, but instead he uses the word Gehenna. And that's really an interesting word because the word itself actually simply means or only means the valley of Hinnom. And there's a reason that Jesus used this particular word. It comes from both an historical context and also a visual demonstration of the characteristics of hell. Now, first, concerning the historical context, what we need to do is go to the Old Testament book of Joshua. And so if you'll turn there for just a minute, here here, uh, Joshua gives us the location of this valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna. In Joshua chapter 15, after the conquest of Canaan, Joshua divided the land up between the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the 15th chapter, he gives the locations of the border of Judah. And in the 8th verse of Joshua 15, it says, And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom unto the south side of the Jebusite, the same as Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain that lieth before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. So there we find the location of the valley of Hinnom. It's on the south side of Jerusalem. Now, actually just a little bit to the southwest. And this particular valley has a very sordid history in the, uh, in the history of Israel, in, in, uh, in, in Scripture. Now, in the book of Leviticus, God gave a very specific command to Israel. He said in Leviticus 18, verse 21, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed, that is your children, pass through the fire to Molech. Neither shalt thou profane the name of the Lord thy God. I am the Lord. Now, I want you to keep that commandment in mind for just a moment because there uh, God says in his law that the children of Israel were not to practice what these people that were called Amorites practiced. And what they did was they would offer their children in sacrifice, burn them in a fire to this heathen God that was called Molech. 
Now we fast forward in history about 900 years from the time that these other scriptures were written, and we come into the time of King Josiah. Now I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. Josiah was one of the good kings of Judah, and he brought reform to the nation after they had committed terrible atrocities. And fortunately, by the time that Josiah came to the throne, God was already fed up with Judah, and they were right on the brink of being taken into the Babylonian captivity. And the worst sin that Judah committed was breaking the commandment that we read just a moment ago in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. They did the very thing that God said that they would be prone to do, that if they mixed and they mingled with these heathens that were around them, that what they would end up doing is worshiping other gods and sacrificing their children to Molech. Now, if you look at verse 1 in chapter 23, the scripture says, And the king sent, that's King Josiah, And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Now that book of the covenant that it speaks of here is the book of God's laws. And this book had been found earlier in the temple. Now, what had happened was that in the previous administrations, the previous kings that came before Josiah, the people of Judah had completely disregarded the law of God. And so what they had done, they forgot about God's law, and they put it away in what you might say was file 13, and they didn't even know where the law of God was. And then they also had taken the vessels that Solomon had made for worship to the one true God, to Jehovah God, all those vessels that were in the temple, and they replaced those with vessels for worship of another heathen God by the name of Baal. In verse number 3 it says, And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. And so Josiah found, or the priest found this book of the law. They brought it to Josiah. He read it, and he said, we are going to live by this law. And so all the children of Israel came together, and Josiah talked with them, and he said, we're going to follow this law. And all the people gave consent that they would follow the laws of God. Now, if you go on reading from there, you'll find out that uh, Joshua, or Josiah rather, uh, took all the vessels that were used in the worship of Baal, and he got rid of those. He took the priest, and he killed them. He cut down the groves, which were areas of trees where keep, they kept their idols, and he took all of that, and he destroyed it by burning it to ashes. Now, if you go down to verse number 10 here in 2 Kings 23, it says, And he defiled Topheth which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. So it says he defiled Topheth. Now, Topheth is in the valley of Hinnom. That's right next to Jerusalem. And this place was a place of heathen demonic worship. This is where human sacrifices were made. This is where the worst abominations against Jehovah God were committed. And so in that valley, in Topheth, in the valley of Hinnom, there were constant fires 
All of the time there were these fires because these people were sacrificing their children to this heathen god Molech. And it seemed like the fires would never go out because sacrifices were made continuously. All the time they're, they're sacrificing their children. And so it was a torturous place of fire for its victims. But Josiah cleaned all of that up. But it wasn't long after that that Josiah was killed in battle. He was fighting Pharaoh Necho from Egypt. And Josiah was killed right next to the city of Megiddo. And if you're interested in that, that's the same place that we've studied in Revelation that's known as Armageddon. That's where Josiah was killed. And so you can check out verses 29 through 30 if you want to later. And it tells you there about the death of Josiah. Well, Josiah's death was in the providence of God. You see, God had already been fed up with Judah over all of their sins. The decision's already been made. He's angry about human sacrifices that have been made. And so he only spared Judah for a short time. And that was because of Josiah's faithfulness. Now, if you would, turn to the book of Jeremiah chapter 7. And this is just a few years afterwards. Jeremiah began as a prophet under King Josiah. And he received a revelation from God that involved this place that's called Topheth, or the Valley of Hinnom. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God is speaking, and he gives this message to Jeremiah and says, This is what you say to the people. He said, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished, and is cut off from their mouth. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places. For the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the Lord of, or for the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. There he means they've taken these heathen gods and they put their idols right into the temple of Jehovah God. Verse 31 says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it unto my heart. And so God says, They have done the very thing that I commanded them not to do. They are taking their children and they sacrificed them to these heathen gods, these heathen gods of of these other peoples. Verse 32 says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. And that means there will be so many people that will be in this valley, their bodies thrown there, that there won't be any more room to even receive all the bodies that are there. And so it says in verse 33, And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven says, you're not even going to be able to bury them. There are going to be so many that the fowls of heaven will come and devour their rotting flesh. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beast of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. 
And the result of all of that is that Judah went into captivity in Babylon. The temple of God was torn down. The walls of Jerusalem, the holy city of God of Zion were torn down. All of that, the center of worship for Israel, for Judah, for God's people, that beloved city of Zion was laid waste because of this terrible sin of going after and sacrificing to false gods. Now that's just part of the atrocious acts that were committed, and that caused both Israel and Judah to be forced out of the land. Now we fast forward again, 500 years from that time, from the time of the destruction of the temple, and now we're in the time of Jesus. And the valley of Hinnom is still there, but by this time that valley had become a despicable place. It was a place that was cursed. There weren't sacrifices made there anymore. People weren't still burning their children in the fire. By, by this time, by Jesus' time, all of that's gone. But there is an interesting thing that took place in that valley. The valley had become a garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you go there today, you can still see the valley. Uh, they don't burn garbage in it any longer. But it's just kind of fascinating to look down into that valley and imagine the kinds of things that took place in Old Testament times, that you would see all these fires burning in that valley and the cries of of children going up that were being burned in the fire. I mean, it was just really a horrible place. And then to, to think about the transformation that took place in the New Testament, that it had become a garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. And so by the time of Jesus, this was a stinking, rotten, garbage dump. All of the filth of the city of Jerusalem, all of the muck and all of the unsanitary human waste and all of the garbage was funneled down into that valley. Criminals were taken there because they weren't allowed decent burials. The street people and beggars were taken there when they died because they couldn't afford to be taken to another place. And so this Valley of Hinnom was really a horrible sight. And fires did continually burn there because of the garbage. Garbage on top of garbage and bodies on top of bodies were heaped into that valley that was right next to the city of Jerusalem. And so when Jesus used the word Gehenna, there was this graphic demonstration right there before their eyes. There's this huge, never-ending fire of the garbage dump. Now, there's one writer who said that hell is God's cosmic dump. The filth of all the world, Christ rejectors, sinners, demons, and Satan are all put into God's cosmic dump. Now that kind of gives you a background for some of the things that Jesus said about this place. Now we're going to talk here for just a few minutes as we uh, try to complete the sermon today about some of the most important aspects that Jesus had to say about this place called hell. Now remember, he has this demonstration right in front of everybody's eyes. They can look over there when he uses the word Gehenna for hell. This is what they're thinking about. That valley filled with garbage and the fires that are burning there. Now, the first thing that Jesus taught about this, about hell, about Gehenna, is the length of punishment. How long will the punishment of hell last? Well, they looked at that continual burning fire of the garbage dump to get an idea. Now, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 42, Jesus tells us quite a bit here about the length of hell. How long does it last? Do people get out of hell? Is it possible to escape hell once you get there? Well, we look here in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 48, and Jesus talks about hell 
He's not using the word Hades, but he's using the word Gehenna. So he says in verse number 42 of chapter 9, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet be cast into hell, that's Gehenna, into the fire that shall never, never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, Gehenna fire. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now the reference there to the worm that doesn't die is to the maggots that crawled all over the garbage. There was an endless supply of food for the maggots. And so the maggots were there day after day and week after week, month after month, year after year. And the idea that Jesus is trying to get across to these people is that hell is an eternal place. The activity of hell goes on forever. It doesn't stop. The punishment doesn't stop. And the fire never goes out. And so the everlasting bodies and souls of people that are put there provide the continual fuel for that burning. And so it goes on forever and ever. Now, the last part of verse 48 is a repetition of what Jesus said several times in the passage I just read. The fire is not quenched. And so you couldn't get a clearer, more unequivocal statement of the length of punishment than this. You see, what Jesus has here is his own flannel graph. He's got his own, his own picture of it right there before their eyes in this place called Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. And he illustrates the point of how long that it lasts by that valley there and that garbage dump that's burning, the maggots that are in there crawling over all of the refuse. Now, folks, what we're talking about here is stuff that comes right from the mouth of the Savior. Jesus wanted people to know about the punishment of hell and how long it's going to last. And we've already seen that in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So how long will the fire burn? Well, the scripture also says that Satan and his angels and the Antichrist and the false prophet are in that place. And the scripture says there in Revelation, just before the point that we read, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus tells us how long that hell will last. But then there's more that Jesus says about this place called Gehenna Hell. There's also the languishing of punishment. Languishing of punishment. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 41. Jesus said, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
In the 49th verse, so shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, first you notice there that he says they will be cast into a furnace of fire. Now, this idea of punishment was first introduced in the New Testament by the, by the, by the world's greatest prophet. You know who that is? That's John the Baptist. Jesus said that there was not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. John the Baptist introduced this in Matthew chapter 3. He said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and garner his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now there, when it says he's going to gather the wheat into the garner, those are people that are redeemed, people that are saved. He gathers them up and he takes them into heaven. But he says the chaff is going to be burned up, burned with unquenchable fire. Now in that unquenchable fire, there's terrible torment, the torment of pain and suffering. And that's more intense than any person has ever experienced. It is relentless. The scripture says there will be crying, there will be wailing. The scripture says continually wailing because of the pain. And it also says that there will be gnashing of teeth. Now some have described that constant grinding as that, as that being that gnashing of teeth as being a constant grinding of the teeth. And that's an expression in scripture that's always associated with anger. When Stephen was stoned, he had preached that great message, and it was a convicting message. And the Bible says that they grit their teeth or they gnash their teeth. And it wasn't until just a few minutes later that they were hurling stones and beating the life out of Stephen. Well, that tells us then that in hell there will be rage. There's rage because of God, rage because of the deceitfulness of Satan. Now, you think a minute about what people say and what preachers are saying today, that there is no hell, that there is no retribution. And Satan tempts people by saying, just live it up. Just, just do anything that you want to do. Don't listen to preachers. Don't go to church. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You do your own thing. You do what you think is best. And so you imagine the rage that comes back, the thoughts of people that come streaming back, these eternal thoughts, these unending thoughts, that there is no escape that they fell for the deception, that there is sorrow there, their lost opportunities, their wasted times when they could have received Christ as Savior. They heard the message being preached. They would not turn to God because Satan deceived them thinking that it's not the time or you don't even need to do this. And preachers who wouldn't preach about hell because they didn't think it was important. And there's going to be rage against Satan, rage against those preachers, rage against all these lost opportunities when people could have received Christ. And so there's a warning here about the stubbornness of people that's landed them in hell where the Bible says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then the Bible also speaks of languishing in hell because of the darkness that's there. Matthew 22, verse 13, it says, then, the, then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jude talks about the sins of false prophets. He says they are reserved for blackness and darkness 
forever. I've heard a lot of preaching about this aspect of hell, about what that really means, that there's darkness there. And some people say that, well, you, you'll be conscious in hell, and you'll know that there are people around you, and you'll hear the wails and the cries of people. But because of that thick darkness, you can't see anything. And so you are completely alone in the fires of hell. You know, people talk about that all the time. If I go to hell, I have plenty of company. Well, you won't be thinking about company if you go to hell. The, the suffering and the pain is so terrible. The language of it is so terrible. And the darkness is so deep that you never, you never even are able to see another person that's in hell. There's no company there. And then there's another aspect of languishing in hell, that, and that's the feeling of despair that's in hell. Alexander Pope wrote that hope springs eternal in the human breast. And I know what Alexander Pope meant by that. He was a preacher back in the 19th century. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. I understand what he meant, but strictly speaking, hope is not an eternal thing. Hope is in this life. There is no hope in, etern- in, the, in the life that's beyond. And it might even surprise you for me to tell you that there is no hope in heaven. There is no hope in heaven. And that's because our hope has been realized. That's why there is no hope. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? So we don't need hope in heaven. You have everything that you ever hoped for. So hope only applies to this life. It's not eternal. And especially when you think about hell, there is no hope in hell. There's nothing but despair. See, if it was possible for you to get out of hell, if you could suffer long enough to pay the punishment of the place, then you'd have some hope that you would get out, something to look forward to. But there's no getting out. There, there's no hope there because there is no release. So hell is a place of eternal despair. Dante said it best in Paradise Lost, in the placard that's placed over to the entrance of hell, it says, All hope abandoned, ye who enter here. Now, let me give you one last consideration to accentuate that thought of languishing and hopelessness and despair. Number three is the location of punishment, the location of it. The Bible does not tell us where hell is. It doesn't tell us where Hades is, although it's popular for people to believe that Hades is in the center of the earth. And people conclude that by where the Bible says that talks about going down to hell. But when you talk about up for heaven and down for hell, those are relative terms that just indicate the separation between the two. And so you go down into the grave and you go up into heaven. The first heaven is up. That's where the birds fly, the atmospheric heavens. That's what the Bible means by the first heaven. The second heaven is space. That's the stellar heavens. And then the third heaven is the place where God lives. And so it just looks like you keep going up and up. Someone asked John MacArthur where heaven is, and he said, up. And they said, well, how far up? And he said, way up, way up. But those are relative terms. Because you, once you get into space, there's really not anything such thing as up and down. I mean, you, you ask an astronaut, some of those that have flown on the space shuttle and so forth, they say one of the funniest feelings that you get is that when you get into weightlessness, you lose the sense of up and down. You don't know which way is up or which way is down. So the Bible doesn't actually give us the location of Hades. It doesn't tell us that it's in the center of the earth, and I'm highly skeptical that it is. But here's something that I know for sure. The lake of fire cannot be in the center of the earth. 
And that's because God is going to destroy the world. He's going to destroy it all. So hell has to be a place that's either outside of the universe, Stephen Hawking notwithstanding. It's either someplace outside of the universe or it exists in another dimension. And I I can't tell you, I can't explain that to you because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where that is. But what about the location of hell as it concerns languishing and despair and having no hope? Well, listen to this familiar verse in Matthew 7. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Listen, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, do you want to know where hell is, the location of it? Hell is apart from God. It's out of the presence of God. Well, you say, well, how is that possible? God created everything, and God transcends the universe, so God is everywhere because he's omnipresent. Well, that's true. But the sense that, that Matthew seven twenty two is talking about is that God has nothing to do with people that he's told to depart. God doesn't consider them. God doesn't take care of them. He has no concern for them. And it's sort of like the same sense when you talk about the saved, where it says that God remembers those, their sins anymore, doesn't remember them any longer, that he's taken their sins and cast them as far away from him as the east is from the west. Well, that's the same sense in which a person departs from God. He's as far away from God as he can possibly be. And so the memory of all of this before God is wiped clean. And God never interacts with these people again. They're forever separated from God. Now, do you see what that would do? God's our only hope, isn't he? God's the only hope that any person can ever get out of hell. But people that are there have no contact with God. They never hear from God again. They have no hope. And so there's no hope in hell because the people there can never contact God. And so when a person goes to hell, the die has been cast. There is no changing it. And friend, here's the thing I want to come down to the end of the message today and tell you that you have already done this if you've rejected Jesus Christ. If you die in rejection of him, then the die has been cast. Eternal punishment is the result in the fires. Fires of hell, that is the result of your judgment. Now, the length of punishment is everlasting. The languishing of hell is excruciating. And the location of hell is far away from the presence of God. And this is why understanding this doctrine has changed many Christian people into absolute proponents and witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want anybody to die and go there. And that's because judgment is real. Hell is real. And the only thing that changes the course of a person towards that awful place is their repentance from their sins and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and that word means narrow, or or it means restricted. The word straight means restricted. Restricted is this gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And folks, I hope that every one of you here today finds eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. To die without him means no hope. No hope. Life is short. We don't know when this life ends. And so the time to trust Jesus Christ is now.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence and we see what the Word of God has to say about the seriousness of this place called hell. There is no changing, there's no altering this after a person leaves this life. And so we have to give this message to people. And, and Lord, we just pray that you would, again, impact our lives with the message of people are dying and going to hell without you. And Lord, may we do everything that we can to stop that from happening. This is why we preach at Berean Baptist Church about these subjects, because every person needs to know that there is a place to be saved from. And we pray, Lord, that you would deliver their souls from hell. Speak to hearts today. Lead us, Lord. Guide us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.